welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. in Luke chapter 6, and the last time the message was titled Stale Religion to Fresh Filling, and today the message is titled More Fresh Filling. I probably should have just made this sermon three of three at this point. Um, And you see, it's kind of cool, you see Jesus comes in the first century um, by even some of the religious writers, if you read Roman history at the time. Uh, they talked about the corruption in the religious system. And there's just this thing with religion. You know, God sets up these perfect standards and he surrounds it with joy and peace and fellowship and fun and usually feasting and food. Um, And then something happens over the course of a few hundred years or maybe the millennia and people get involved. They sort of get into sort of a hierarchy. Um, Sometimes it brings them power and they kind of forget the original intent of what God set up. So not all religion is bad, of course, uh, but Jesus came to show that, hey, this is what was set up in eternity. This is for your good, right? The mnemonic devices and all the pairing of, of good things with God's laws and his redemption and rules and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this is unfortunately what people have done over the years. And Jesus, he brings out that dichotomy. So what he tries to do is kind of refresh everything. You know, Jesus comes and he uh, says, this is really what the original intent was. Strangely enough, the religious leaders kind of argue with him. You know, they like things the way they are. They don't like the change. Uh, they, they, they've kind of been blinded by the power and the money and the political situation. Um, and, and that's an amazing thing. Imagine that that religion is arguing with God the Son about what God's law was originally supposed to be. Let's meditate on that for a moment. So we're going to look at this, and we're also going to see the freshness and how he chose his apostles uh, versus how the religious system chose their apostles and disciples. Uh, and we're going to look at this in three parts. So we're going to jump in in Luke chapter 6 in the New Testament. Verses 1 through 5, it says, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he, Jesus, went through the grain fields. This is something unusual to us. We have paved roads, but when you would go from one place to another, oftentimes you would pass through people's farms. You would pass through, you know, it's an agrarian culture for the most part. And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees, who were the religious echelon, said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read even this, what David did when he was hungry? So referring to King David, many centuries before, right, history. He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful, for any but the priest to eat. So you can almost see at first glance Jesus is kind of painting himself into a corner, but let's let's look let's talk about what this looks like. And he said to them the son of man is also lord of the sabbath. So one out of three parts is Jesus broke sabbath law? question mark question mark. So we have to ask ourselves what is the sabbath? What's the sabbath? What's this all about? Right? What's the accusation the religious leaders are making against Jesus and his disciples? What is the account Jesus is referring to in history? And how does that account refute the accusations that are made against him? So I'm glad you asked those four questions. Let's take a look. Right? The Sabbath. Where do we find the Sabbath? Well, it's in the Old Testament for the most part. Genesis 2, uh, Exodus 20, Nehemiah, and other scriptures. And it was basically a day of rest. So God made everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, do you think God, who doesn't have flesh and bone, he's spirit, he's the creator, he made everything, he's eternal. Do you think that after six days of making the planets and, you know, 
human beings and animals and stuff that he said, boy, I'm so tired. I just need a day of rest, Gabriel. You know, I'm just going to sit on the couch in heaven and kind of chill out here. Of course, the answer is no. What God did was a lot of the things that he did were for our benefit. And we're going to see that the Sabbath was made for people, right? God did this on purpose. So he has this this system where on six days he makes everything and on the seventh day he rested. So the people were supposed to rest on the seventh day. Now, there's also a spiritual component to the Sabbath because the Bible tells us that the Sabbath is supposed to be holy. A lot of times we miss that when we read it. We, we say, oh, the Sabbath is a day of rest. But the Sabbath was supposed to be made holy, now holy to be set apart. So now there's a spiritual component to the Sabbath here. So it, it's a time to reflect physically from, from labor, but it also is a time to reflect on God. And at the very least, it should be a day that doesn't allow the busyness of work and life to get in the way of our relationship with God. As humans, we can be stubborn, and sometimes God has to remind us of things over and over again so that we, we do things that are good for us, right? Now, there's not a lot of specifics here, but religion filled in the blanks and made it burdensome. Now, today, there are some that, uh, and again, there's Jewish sects and there's Christian sects that have these rules for the Sabbath. Um, in one of the sects, the... Uh, people who are very observant of the Sabbath won't turn on the light switch because turning on the light switch can create, it's electricity, can create a spark, can technically be work and you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Now, I worked with electricity for 20 years and I can tell you that if you have sparks, when you turn on your light switch, something's wrong with your wiring. <laughs> but you, you get the picture. This is religion. And we're going to talk about Christian sects as well that look at this and you know, it becomes an oppressive religious right that God never intends. The accusation. So the disciples are going through the fields, and if you've ever been through, you know, maybe those corn mazes or a farm, and you just you're walking through, you know, you can see the whatever's growing, and the, you see the stalks and the the edible part of the of the the grain, and the disciples would pluck it as they were walking through it, and they would eat it. They would eat it. However, the religious leaders... Now, in, this, in the Bible, it says that if you go through, right in the Old Testament, if you go through your neighbor's field, you're, it's by God's law, you can, if you're hungry, pluck the heads and eat them. But it does say that you shouldn't have a container. <laughs> so in other words, you can't, under the guise of saying, oh, I'm hungry, I've been walking for 10 miles, here, let me just take a whole bunch of this, my neighbor's stuff and put it on my shoulder and take it home with me. So God's laws always made sense. However, the religious leaders looked at this and they felt that the disciples plucking the heads of grain, so plucking it would be harvesting. And this is what you would do if you're familiar with, if you've ever been to a farm and you, you rub it in your hands and you separate the edible part, the heart of it, from the husk, which is inedible. Right? They said that that was winnowing. And then, you know, you, you separate the two and you put the thing in your mouth that's considered prep, preparing a meal. So the religious leaders said, just the simple act of putting something in your stomach because you're hungry was an act of harvesting, winnowing, and preparing, which equals work. But they were hungry. Right? And you eat when you're hungry. Even the Bible says about the animals, when the ox is treading out the grain, that the farmer is not supposed to stop the ox when he's hungry. You know, you, you have animals, work animals, eventually, you know, they, they get hungry, they want to eat. Let the ox finish munching a little bit and then let them start working again. So even God's care was for the animals. Um, so pretty neat stuff here. Uh, God's ways always make sense. Jesus responded, and this comes back to, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. And this was a situation, so Jesus is accused of something, his disciples, and then he responds with scripture, which he always did. And he references a, a historical account, which happened centuries before, where King David, um, where David and his men were going through Jerusalem and they were hungry. And they get to where the temple is. And there's 12 loaves of showbread, which, according to God's ceremonial law, 
was only lawful for the priest to eat. So David asked the priest, he says, um, my men are so hungry, we've been on a long uh, trip, and the priest said, all we have right now is the show bread. But you know what? Go ahead and eat it. Go ahead and eat it. So what happened was David and his men actually break ceremonial law so that they don't starve. What, is, what does this mean here? What's going on here? You know, it's, here's kind of what happens, right? And today, listen, in America, we have so many laws. We probably have thousands of laws. We have federal law. We have, um, you know, county law, state law, local law. We even have global law now that we're being kind of pushed into. And there's literally thousands of them. What happens when there's a conflict between two laws? Right? What happens when you have to go before the judge? They have to determine which law is more important. So God had his ceremonial law. He had his civil law. He had his criminal law. But when the two of those laws came into conflict, like David and his men eating the showbread, which was violating the civil law, sorry, skip that, the ceremonial law, the priest allowed them to do that. Why? Because the law of human need supersedes most things um, below that. So I'll give you an example, and, and I love science. I enjoyed science in college. I still have my textbooks, but how does a plane get off the ground? I mean, these things are, some, some of them are hundreds of tons of steel and plastic and, and all kinds of rubber. And you, you look up and you, this, we live by the uh, military base, and man, these, there's some big fat planes. And, and they come over, they look like they're right over the house, and you, they can carry military equipment, Humvees, all that kind of stuff. It's a principle called Bernoulli's principle, and it's how fast the wind speed can go over what's called an airfoil, which gives the wing lift. So for the time that the wind speed is fast, depending on how fast the plane is going, gravity seems like it doesn't exist. How is that thing in the air? Because Bernoulli's principle supersedes gravity. When the speed slows down, the lift isn't as great off the wings and the plane starts to land. God's law said that human need was more important, for the most part, than some of the other laws. So Jesus is pointing that out to them. Remember, Jesus is God the Son. Jesus was in eternity when the law was constructed before he came in the form of a man. It's, you know, God's, God's word is common sense. It's good. It makes sense. You know, when I have discussions with people, and, and they're maybe not a believer... I try to show them the sense of God's word and God's will for our lives, right? You look at what's going on in the world. It seems like everybody's lost their mind in our culture, in the world. What's going on? But you've got to go back to where what God said is good, and it makes sense every time. Matthew 12, 7, right? In Matthew 12, 7, which is a parallel gospel of this account, so it's the same account, but Matthew adds a nuance that Luke doesn't have. And he says, but if you had known, so Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. If you had known what this means, quote, this is from Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless. We've read this before. Um, and we saw this when Jesus was, you know, calling Matthew the tax collector and the religious leaders didn't like all the sinners that Jesus was hanging out with. Uh, and Jesus basically told this cold religious system, you know, you don't have mercy. You, you're not caring for the people. You've made the rites and the rules and the rituals almost the God themselves where the people are subservient to. And that's, none, and that's not the way God intended it. Even the religious leaders of King David's day, remember, they didn't say to David and his men, get out of here. That's only for the priest. We don't care if you starve. They said, come eat, have as much as you want. I could see that you, you and your men are famished, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Um, so even the religious leaders of King David's day weren't as strict and constricting as the religious system of the first century. And today, people do the same thing, unfortunately. They claim that Jesus was their founder, but they teach things and do things in their rights that are against what Jesus taught himself, which doesn't make any sense. Verse 3, going back to Luke, he says to the religious leaders, have you not even read this? Okay, I see that as, 
I can't think of another word, but insult, a slight. He's telling the religious leaders who had memorized the entire Old Testament that, have you guys never read this part of the Bible? Of course they read it. But his point was to, to kind of open their eyes. They prided themselves of memorizing God's word. However, they weren't accurately applying it and they ended up mis- misrepresenting God. And that's the tragedy when it comes to any church. Any, listen, you come into this place, we do something, we say something, I teach something, write it down. You got an issue with it? Let's talk about it. That's why you all have Bibles in those pews. You know, you should question things because if the purpose of a church is to get you closer to God and that's not happening, you have to question that, right? And this system was so corrupt that the people just, they quit. They emotionally just gave up. Because questioning wasn't, it wasn't allowed. So we continue. We can, again, we can memorize the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. And because we don't understand it as leaders, if we don't understand it, we end up misrepresenting God. And that's not what we're supposed to do. For some people, this is refreshing. You know, I have friends who are atheists and they say, but religion. And, I'm, and I say, I'll go down that road with you, but religion, no problem. Because that's not me. And the people that you're pointing to have lost the ability to represent God. And if that's the case, stop following them. Seek God. You can find him, the Bible tells us. Verse 5, we continue. He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is another of Jesus's, some would say subtle, some would say overt, his self-expression of deity. Only God can be Lord of the Sabbath because he created the Sabbath and he made the rules for the Sabbath, right? So Jesus saying that, he's he's claiming to be deity. As a matter of fact, in Mark 2, adds a subtlety that says, quote, the Sabbath was made for, Jesus said this, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to help us and not hurt us. Amen? As, As are all of God's rules. It keeps us in a good place. It keeps us safe. So God the Son is giving them a lesson on the original intent when the Sabbath was established and giving to humankind. Okay. Now, I, I you know, it was interesting because I got saved a while back and then, you know, my mom, my sister, so people in my family end up getting saved. Um, you know, we all come from broken, a broken home and, and there was divorce and it was, it was just, it was, it wasn't fun growing up. I can tell you that I didn't, uh, relish a lot of the memories of my childhood, but so later on in life, you know, I get saved and I'm, I'm trying to talk to my family. I love them. I want them to be saved too. And my mom is doing really good. And then people start knocking at the door and it actually was the seventh day Adventist. And they, my mom was a nurse, and that was the thing she always loved to do. And she uh, would have to work sometimes on the weekends, but she always would get the sermons she would, you know, from the church that we were going to. And they basically told her, in order to be a good Christian, you have to observe the Sabbath, and you have to quit your job as a nurse. And, uh, you know, I was a new Christian, and all of a sudden there were things clicking in my brain that were like, wait, something's wrong. So then I came over when they would come and sit with her, and uh, I heard some of the things the guy was saying, and I didn't want to be argumentative, but I went to a Galatians 4, Colossians 2. Um, we have a gentleman in the back who's working, right, who has to work on the weekend, and he's listening right now. So what would they say about that, right? I mean, I was a police officer at the time. My mom was a nurse. Um, and I would bring them to Galatians 4 and Colossians 2, where the Apostle Paul rebuked rebuked those who claimed to be Christians and were going back to this day thing. Now, this is the important part because if I don't explain this, it's going to be confusing. So the old covenant had the Sabbath. And I quoted to you the scriptures in Exodus and um, you know Genesis that had to do with the Sabbath, which was established. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in the old covenant said to the old covenant worshipers, a new covenant is coming where the law would be written on your heart and you don't have to necessarily be pedantic about, you know, know this, know that, memorize this, walk around with this, you know, kind of right ritual. So when the New Testament came, which Jeremiah predicted, um, there were 
there was a change because there was a change, a change in what's called dispensation. Right? Jesus had come. He had fulfilled the law and the prophets. I went through this the last few Sundays. And the, the whole thing about rules was relaxed by God because um, you know, the Holy Spirit had come and, and believers are uh, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teaches us and, and tells us what's good. And you know, it's almost that some people think it's a conscience when you're a believer, but a lot of times if it's spiritual matters, it has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is guiding us. So that's a beautiful thing. So Galatians 4, Colossians 2, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council did not have this strict requirement for the Sabbath. It's not in there. So as people in the New Covenant or in the New Testament or the Age of Grace where we're in now, um, we, you know, it, it, Jesus, it, it's more of a relationship with God. And he, you know, we're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to know the Word. But it's, it's sort of a different dispensation. I want to read to you something that is kind of funny because I'm, I'm flipping through. I'm, I'm getting my notes together and I'm looking at some of these things. And I say to myself... I went to, his name is Warren Wearsby. He's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, the message, the book is titled, Be Compassionate. And he kind of goes over this. And instead of paraphrasing what he said, I'm just going to read what he said. <laughs> Page 59, some people say things better than I do. He says, to call Sunday the Sabbath is to confuse the first day and the seventh day which is what each signifies. The Sabbath is a reminder of the completion of the old creation, while the Lord's Day, Sunday, is a reminder of our Lord's finished work in the new creation. Totally different things. You can't conflate them. The Sabbath speaks of rest after work and relates to the law, while the Lord's Day speaks of rest before work and relates to grace. The Lord's Day commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as well as coming the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birthday of the church. Pretty neat, huh? So people get confused. They're like, well, so is, is Sunday our new Sabbath day? It's not. However, there is a principle that, that if we're working seven days a week, we're going to get burnt out, right? I mean, even if we call ourselves Christians and we're working, 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 and this is all we do, leisure, play, vacations, work, new house, new car, bigger this, bigger that, the American dream. That can, that can sometimes snuff out the things of God because we're going to get fried. And I did this a few times in my career, and I don't know why I did it after the first time, but, and you're not supposed to do this legally, but I don't think they're going to come after me now, is I worked 24 hours straight. I worked a side job, and then I worked a shift, and then I took overtime. And after 24 hours of working, I went home, I laid in my bed, and my eyes were like this. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't fall asleep. <laughs> you felt like you were going insane, right? You, your body can only take so much abuse. It can only take so much information. The brain has to... Obviously, I'm still here, so everything is, is good. Um, but I did that twice, and I never did it again. And we can get fried. We can get anxiety attacks. We can... Um, just feel hopeless and, you know, like those little hamsters on the wheel going, 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 going. And what are we really achieving? We have stuff in our house, but we're not happy. Why are we still not happy? We worked for this and we got to do that. And we got to do this. You see where I'm going with this, folks? So what God does is he shows us there's a better way. He shows us that we should, well, first of all, if we call ourselves Christians, we should make time for God, right? So the American dream, Monday through Saturday work, Sunday Sunday's the day, the day for the sports games and the, um, you know, the vacations and going out on the boat and stuff like that because we're working Monday through Saturday. Where's the time for God? We have to prioritize, folks. We have to prioritize. Listen, I might tick somebody off what I just said, but I can't pretend that this doesn't exist. You know, one day we'll be in the Lord's kingdom. I don't think sleeping for me is always difficult. I have like a mild form of sleep apnea. I can't wait for the day that I don't have to sleep anymore. It's just more of a, a, I wake up, I look at my watch, it's four in the morning, flip over to the other side, go to sleep. Maybe too much information for all of you, but, um, you know, this world is filled with struggles, isn't it? So I'm, I'm looking forward to the Lord's kingdom where none of these things really are an issue anymore. So I, I understand the principle, but it's also not mandated. Otherwise, you get what's called legalism, forcing people to do things, right? 
The Holy Spirit will tell you what's right and what's not right. Verse 6, now it happened on another Sabbath also that he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. The man arose and stood next to Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Imagine that happening in a house of worship. So two out of three is Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Now, the religious leaders, verse 7, are watching Jesus closely to see if he'll heal on this Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. So in their minds, if Jesus did a miracle and helped somebody who was disabled... And if, imagine if we saw that, we'd, I'd be jumping, I'd be screaming, I'd be, I don't know, I'd be singing maybe, but I'd be like, wow, that is the, the coolest thing. I got to see that happening in action. However, the religious leaders were like, just, they, I don't know, I could just imagine them just furrowing their eyebrows and, and you could tell they were mad at what he was doing. And they probably considered what Jesus was doing in a healing as work. Everything's work to them. It's like, then don't, you know, well, I'm not going to get into that. Um, so they scrutinize him, right? Come into a house of worship and behaving like that. And folks, listen, in a house of worship, what should we be doing? Should we be looking to get closer to God? Should we be looking to make connections with people? Um, unfortunately, they were in a house of worship just for not any good reason. Now, the religious leaders were sure and I believe I can infer this from, from the account, that Jesus was going to heal this man. I have to digress for a moment. What a reputation. Oh, wherever we go, wherever that Jesus guy is, someone's going to get healed. Oh my goodness, the guy who can't walk, he's going to stand. The guy whose hand is shriveled up, he's going to be able to work the next day. Imagine having that reputation. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. And you know what it goes to show? And I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it. You know, you try to go into a situation and, you know, bring God into the situation, bring good things, and people get mad at you. It's a spiritual thing. And you, you scratch your head and say, what did I do wrong? All I was trying to do was make the situation better. You ever hear the expression, misery loves company? And sometimes you break into a social group that they're just always miserable. They're always complaining. They're always talking about people. And you're like, hey, you know, you try to bring a little levity or light into the situation and they're mad at you. If you're that type of person, you're in good company because you're emulating what Jesus did. So how do people characterize us, right? We try to make situations better or we try to make them worse. Verse 8. Jesus, once again, as God the Son, reads their thoughts. So many places in Scripture where Jesus, you see his deity come out. Verse 9, Jesus says to them, because he knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're saying, he knows the gossip. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And what does Jesus do? He brings them back to the original intent of this what? Holy day. This, is, this day is a blessing. You know, and God sends His Son to come to the earth, and all He had to do, well, it was a huge, incredible thing that He did, was die for our sins, but the icing on the cake is He taught, He healed people, He fed people, He encouraged them, He ministered to them emotionally. He did all these wonderful things that He didn't have to do, in addition to dying for our sins. So on this beautiful holy day, what He tries to do is He heals, but they're mad at that. Let's go to Matthew 12 again. And again, this is Matthew recounting the same event, and he adds a nuance that Luke doesn't add that Jesus said. So Matthew 12, verse 11, Jesus said to them, to the religious leaders, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, right? 
farm animals, stuff happens, they get into accidents, you know, they're mischievous. Will he not lay hold of it, the sheep, and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's pretty impressive. As God, he knows that on any given day, you know, you have your plot of land, and it's not like today where everybody can see, you know, close, close quarters and stuff. But on any given day, animals who are mischievous got hurt, got entangled in brush, fell into a pit. Jesus says, I know all of you. He's God the Son. I know that on the Sabbath, you'll do work. You'll sweat. You'll pull a muscle to get that animal out of the pit so it doesn't die. So stop being hypocrites. So here's a man, a human being, made in God's image, who maybe, now remember the culture back then, and I love to do this because I've studied the culture, is that it's different in American culture. A lot, of, a lot of years have passed, but just it was the way back then. The man, physically stronger, would do the work and earn the money to feed his family. Maybe this man had a beg. Maybe because of how bad was, was it congenital? How was he deformed? Well, I don't know. But maybe he couldn't provide for his family. And maybe every day that he had a beg, it was humiliating to him. And this was the day that Jesus was going to make him whole again. So he could go out and have a sense of dignity. Amen? That's so important. And we, we, even when we think about government and things you know, in our culture... To give somebody a sense of dignity, opportunity to go out there and fulfill their dreams is, is a wonderful thing. Is a wonderful thing. So, so this is what happens. Um, he shows them their, their hypocrisy. And in verse 10, he says, stretch out your hand. Imagine that, Jesus. You, you got front row seats to this. You know something's happening. Is Jesus, and then there's the man, and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. You know what it doesn't record in the scripture? It doesn't record him saying, but I can't. You know, if God asks us to do something, he'll also give us the ability to be able to do something. Amen? That's what God does. He enables, he empowers, he gives us that dignity. God would never ask us to do something that we couldn't do. That would be cruel. That's what the world does. But that's not how God does things. So let me say something to you this morning is that if God is calling you to do something and you think I can't, if he's truly calling you to do something, you will have the ability to do it because that's the God that we serve. Verse 11, the religious leaders were filled with rage. And sadly, this rage in the religious system has been the source, to my atheist friends watching, I do have some atheist friends who chime in time to dime, this type of religious hypocrisy and rage has caused wars and suffering and power structures in the name of religion. But that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. If you read Matthew 23, it's a long chapter. Jesus dresses down the religious system from A to Z. He, he goes into the way they choose their disciples, he goes into the way they follow their rites and rituals. This is Jesus Christ attacking religion in Matthew 23. So for those of you that have been hindered by coming to God because of religion, read Matthew 23 and you're going to be a believer. You're going to say, wow, I always conflated Jesus with the religious system. It's not true. It's not true. If it's doing it right, then yes. If it's not, then no. <laughs> That's why the Gospels are so long and the New Testament is so long. Because he pretty much um, covers every little nook and cranny. So pretty neat stuff here. Now, I see Jesus not trying to change the Sabbath because that's a, the debate people have. I see Jesus trying to bring back the purity of it, the joy in a house of worship. You know, today, right, when we fellowship afterwards, um, listen, I know people who have come from organizations or even churches and um, whatever, some have reputations, right? That Westboro Baptist, they're the angry ones who have the placards attacking everybody. Um, and it's just a weird situation. Or someone who's come into a church and instead of getting a hello, they get 
scowled faces. Who's that guy? He's not part of our club. That's not what a church is supposed to be. We should supposed to enjoy our time in a church in a house of worship. Um, but you didn't see that happening here. And listen, 2022, the principles are still there. Compassion, joy, fellowship, not to be suffocated. Not to be suffocated. Verse 12, continuing on. So here's the selection of the apostles. Jesus, it comes to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. God the Son in communion with God the Father. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also called Peter. Andrew, his brother, James and John. Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and healed them all. Three out of three is disciples, two apostles. So he prayed, and then he selected. And, you know, with every major decision in life, we should be praying first. A lot of times, Jesus really just led by example. How how were these intimate moments of him, God the Son, God the Father, recorded in Scripture? They were pretty, sometimes Jesus was alone. Jesus wanted to make sure that in, I guess you could say, the Gospels or biographies of Jesus, he wanted that in there. He wanted to lead by example, whether it was group prayer or just between him and and God the Father. But we should be praying before we make major life's decisions. Now, for Jesus to walk with these these men, and there were many women too, uh, these three plus years, uh, he had to make sure he made the right decisions. So it's probably in the back of people's minds a lot of you are thinking what about judas i'm going to get to that (laughs) so uh what you won't hear in some of these uh popcorn ministries that i call these fake ministries is that everything we do as christians are going to work out perfect lovely and we're going to be happy and it's going to be a fairy tale the rest of our life it's actually not true jesus prayed and still chose judas he didn't make a mistake But let me ask you a question. Did you ever walk with God and things become more challenging, not less? You ever get saved? And, you know, before I was saved, I was like a brute beast. You know, all I could think about was the world and how I, you know, Joe's way. And and then I become a Christian and I'm like, wait a minute. Now there's still part of that in me. But then there is what does God want to do? What does God want me to do? So now there's a conflict. So when we become believers, right, we start walking with the Lord, things are going to be more challenging. It's almost easier to still be in the world. However, it's only through Christ that we have eternal life. So to me, I want my best years to be in his kingdom. <laughs> they don't necessarily have to be here. Um, but, you know, it's, you just always know that whatever you go through, that the Lord is walking with you. So... I've said this before, in 26, 27 years as a Christian, there's been a lot of prayers that I've asked God for things and he didn't give me. But I look at that as a good thing, right? Um, I can look back at some things in my life and say, I, now I know why he didn't answer that prayer. But again, in some of these ministries, they tell you, just keep repeating it like a mantra and God will give it to you. God's not a genie in the bottle. He's God. (laughs) We're supposed to be submitting to his will and understanding why we're submitting to his will. That's biblical. (laughs) So um, why did Jesus choose Judas? Well, Jesus had to be betrayed. Jesus had to go to the cross. Otherwise, we'd still be stuck in our sins. So something that looked pretty bad and a stain on on the Gospels at the end and how this thing took place and and the betrayal and um, the, the, the heartbreak that it caused his followers and many of them fled. At the end of the day, we all can be saved. We're all saved if we trust in Christ and what he did on the cross. So there's your answer. Um, I, I've played a little bit with this. I looked at history. Verse 15 
Simon, there is a Simon in here, not Simon Peter. They had very similar names, and a lot of them were biblical names. So, like, I'm Joe. You know how many people in Staten Island I grew up with that had my name, Joe? Joe, Vinny, you know. (laughs) So it it was a very common name, and probably for, I don't know for what reason, but it's too much information. Um, This had to do with the people had similar names because of you know, the, the culture and things like that. As a matter of fact, a lot of the last names weren't like our last names. The last names reflected where they came from. It, the last name could have reflected their father's name. It could have reflected um, the type of culture or the people that they were involved with, the sect. So it's different than what we're used to. So let me go through this. Simon the Zealot. Zealot can mean what we would understand as sort of a revolutionary. I'm going to come back to that. Verse 16, Judas Iscariot. Okay, when we look at these words, we're talking about translations, less translations, more transliterations. In other words, the word in English is fully preserved from the word that it came from. So Iscariot could mean ish, meaning man in Hebrew. Ishkarioth, which he's a man from Karioth. Or there's a very strong alternate translation that means that Judas could be like Simon the Zealot, he could be Judas the Sicarius, right? A dagger man, a revolutionary. There actually was a famous movie called Sicario. Uh, it's transliterated now into Spanish. It's the same meaning that it, it, it takes. So he could have been part of what was called the Sicari. They were Jewish zealots fighting guerrilla warfare against Rome. And that would explain why when Jesus, maybe Judas thought, okay, I don't want to get too into this, but because some of you are like, wow, now I'm really confused. Why would he do that? It is quite possible that Judas sees that, maybe he thought that Jesus, the miracles and, and all the stuff, that he's definitely going to overtake Rome. He's definitely going to you know, attack and, and the garrisons. And, and what happens is over time, he realizes Jesus actually didn't come for that. He came to die for our sins. And Judas becomes disillusioned with Jesus and then sells him out. Interesting. Now, so he might not have won over Judas Iscariot, but he definitely won over Simon the Zealot. So, what I love about this, and think about this, Matthew the tax collector was a turncoat to his own people. So how did the Zealots get along with the turncoat in the twelve? Boy, Jesus had his hands full, didn't he? But you know what it shows? It shows that he took people from a cross-section of society. They weren't cookie cutters like the religious system did. He found people that were broken, like Nicole's uh, broken crayons, right? Broken toys. And what he tried to do through the power of the Holy Spirit is change them. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. How many of you have a testimony? I know I've shared mine. I've done things I'm not proud of before I was a Christian. And he took me, who was broken, and sought the wrong things to fill the voids in my life, and he fixed me. So who am I to look at the zealot and say, oh, you know, why did Jesus do that? Then you could say, well, why did Jesus do that with me or you? Amen? So this is what Jesus does. The turncoat, the tax collector, becomes an incredible man of faith, and writes one of the largest gospels and that we have in the new testament the passion that he uses right the people that he turned on his own jewish people he comes back to faith and he writes a whole gospel to the people he turned his back on and says no no i'm a changed man let me tell you mashiach jesus yeshua now he's going back to his roots and proving the messiahship of jesus christ how does that happen in the world only through jesus christ you know, you go into a, into a corporation, you go for a job interview, this might be speaking to some of you, I don't know, and a lot of times that corporation, you could have all the degrees and all the things in the world, but they want to make sure you're totally in line with them in your thought. And you almost kind of, you, thank God I don't have to go for job interviews anymore, um, but you kind of have this kind of thing back and forth with the interviewer to see, am I saying the right things that he or she is receiving what I'm saying and they're going to give me the job? That's not how it works in Christianity. You come the way you are. It's the Lord who's the one who's going to change you and make a better person out of you. The corporations don't have time for that. But Jesus does. Isn't this stuff powerful, folks? Like anything that you find in here is, it's, I get excited. This is actually contained. Ask my wife. I mean, I can get really, she'll tell me, she's saying to me, you're, you're, you're going overboard. Settle down, you know what I'm saying? But um, it's cool. 
Uh, so anyway, let's go back to the story here. Why did Jesus choose these people? Well, again, variety, because he likes to change people and make them better. Um, iron sharpening iron, Proverbs. Um, I can tell you that the person that I met who led me to the church that led me to Christ, when I first met him, I did not like him. We just had this thing. And I'm so glad that God worked on me because he's the one who actually led me to a place where I could receive Jesus. Folks, you could go to with all these applications this morning. You could be a part of a church. It could be this church. And there's that one person that gets on your nerves. And you, if they're not here, you almost breathe a sigh of relief. Oh. But you know what? I've seen people, women, guys, I've seen people who they feel like that about each other and they just start to pray about it. They start to think about it. And they start to say, is it me? And, they, and you know what? God brings those two people together. Maybe it's not a perfect friendship, but they can at least tolerate each other and love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Listen, I, I never want to put anyone, <laughs> this is my old job coming back to me, I never want to put you in a place where you, someone's being abusive and you just keep throwing yourself back into the situation. That's not what I'm referring to. Right? Sometimes people prey on Christians because they think they're gullible. God's not calling us to be gullible, he's all, he, but he's calling us to love people. And there's a difference. So I want to make sure that's clear. Um, continuing on, the, the way the religious leaders, sort of like I talk about the, listen, if, you, if you're a CEO and you don't run your corporation like that, I apologize. But <laughs> I'm just... I mean, there's different strokes for different folks. But back in the day, the way they chose their religious disciples, they were cookie cutters. And Jesus goes through this in Matthew 23. They were obedient cookie cutters that didn't ask questions that were going to toe the party line. Jesus did a totally different work. And that's part of the reason he did what he did. Um, He aligned them through the power of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily, you know, a, a, a controlling thought pattern. Big difference. When you are aligned with the Holy Spirit, God will bring you together and have you work on a team in a different way than the way the world works. These are good lessons, especially for the young people here. It's good stuff. So, last point before we close is disciple. Literally means, when you translate it, disciple. Jesus chose his 12, or he had multiple what's called learners. They learned, or they were pupils. That's what disciple means. Apostle. So you see him choosing the 12 literally means sent one or messenger. So in other words, you have to learn the message before you can go spread the message. There's like a progression here, right? You look at Elijah to Elisha in the Old Testament. Powerful testimony. Elisha didn't know anything. Elijah calls him and and teaches him, and then Elijah is taken up in those chariots of fire. And now Elijah's he's ready to go because he's been he now can carry the message because he was a learner for all these years. The apostle Paul was Saul. You know, God, uh, he, he ends up being blind for a time, and then he's, he goes and he, he's, he's secluded to learn, to be discipled, and then he comes out and he becomes the apostle Paul. You know, it didn't happen overnight. So yes, God wants to change us, but it doesn't happen overnight. He's, he's a gentleman with us. He doesn't I have to be careful with my words. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's a gentleman. Um, he does the process. Uh, and, and if you look back five years, even two years a year, you look back when you first got saved, you say, you know what? I am becoming a different person. It's subtle. Sometimes there's some pain in it, but it's good nonetheless. The Bible talks negatively about someone who's always learning, but never doing anything with us. And that's important. You know, you, some of these theologians, they, they're in their ivory towers. They learn, they memorize, just like the religious leaders back then. They never do anything to lift a finger to help anybody else because it's all head knowledge for them. But at some point, let's put the titles aside. I don't consider myself an apostle. Put the titles aside. We do, at some point, we learn, we receive, and then we go and we do something with it. We use the spiritual gifts that God gave us. It's almost like the coach is with his team for weeks and months and practice and practice. But when the game starts, the coach is actually not on the, in the center of the field. He's not or she's not the one with the ball. 
It's the players that are. And they have to remember all the instructions. Pastor Vinny's going to love this, being coached for 44 years. Um, it's, it's all that training, all that instruction, all that sweat, that now they're, they're, it's game time, literally. And the two coaches are in the sidelines, maybe calling out different plays or helping the, the players out. But the players have to do the work. Right? Jesus is our coach. He's our spiritual head coach. At some point, he steps back, and we've got to go do whatever he's called us to do. Uh, when he sends out the 70, it's pretty cool. They end up failing at times with some things. He regroups them, retrains them, and he sends them out again. Eventually, he ascends into heaven, and here we are today in the church age. Amen? Amen. So for 2,000 years, right? And we still get instructed by the Holy Spirit, by His Word, and we're out there to do these things. So this is exciting to me because um, I, just, I just love what Jesus says. And I was, as a young man, turned off by religion. A lot of things about it turned me off. But when I looked at the freshness, I started reading the Bible. And I was skeptical at first. When I started reading the Bible and I started reading about Jesus and how He did things, I'm like, I fell in love with Him. How do you not fall in love with him? I've never met him physically. I've never touched him. I've never seen a real picture of him, although everybody's painting looks different. Uh, but, but I fell in love with the person and the character of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Amen? So I just want to encourage you as we go out into this world, listen, you, you're always going to be blessed and it's always going to bring you joy. When you walk with him, have that relationship with him, let him lead you and see what he's going to do through you. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org Thanks for listening and may God bless.